You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Saturday, about 11 o'clock, they began their advance, and our brave and beloved General Cobb placed his brigade behind a stone fence and pulled off his hat and, waving it over his head, exclaimed, Get ready, boys, here they come. And they did come, sure. We waited until they got within about 200 yards of us and rose to our feet and poured volley after volley into their ranks, which told a most deadening effect. They soon began to waver, and at last broke, but the shouts of our brave soldiers had scarcely died away when we saw coming another column more powerful and seemingly more determined than the first, if possible, but only a few rounds from our brave and well-tried men was necessary to tell them that they had undertaken a work a little too hard. But before they had entirely left the field, another column, and another, and another, and still another came to their support. But our well-aimed shots were more than they could stand, so about night they were compelled to give up the field covered with their dead. The whole time of the engagement, our brave and gallant general was encouraging on his men until a shot from the enemy's cannon gave him his mortal wound. He was on the right side of our company, only a few feet from me, when wounded. Pace and Artis, being one of our litter-bearers, ran to him, and I shall never forget his last look as they laid him on the litter to bear him from the field. His last words to his men were, I am only wounded, boys. Hold your ground like brave men. I have been in many engagements before, but I never saw in my life such a slaughter. Sergeant William R. Montgomery, Phillips Legion, Cobb's Brigade. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 236 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As you guys will recall, when we left off last time, the Federal Second Corps commander, Darius Couch, was up in the cupola of the Fredericksburg Courthouse, watching the debacle that was unfolding out in the killing fields between the town and the foot of Maurice Heights. Couch noted with dismay that his men seemed to melt before the savage Confederate cannon fire and musketry, quote, like snow coming down on warm ground. 
Couch had been ordered to send one or two divisions against Marie's Heights to attack and gain a lodgment there on the high ground outside Fredericksburg in order to prevent rebel reinforcements from Longstreet's lines from going down to help out Stonewall Jackson. Couch had sent in the divisions of French and Hancock, but they'd been brought to a halt by the Confederate artillery firing from their emplacements near the crest of Marie's Heights and by the intense musket fire from the rebel infantry manning a strong position behind a stone wall at the base of the heights. Couch's orders only required him to send forward a couple of divisions against Marie's Heights, and he had done that. But now with those two divisions having run into serious trouble, and with Hancock calling for help, Couch had no choice but to send in his last division, Howard's division, to the support of the beleaguered troops already out there, and to hopefully get the stalled advance moving once again. At the same time that Couch was ordering Howard to enter the fray, Ninth Corps Commander Orlando Wilcox was directing Brigadier General Samuel D. Sturgis's division to join Howard's assault. As we said in the last show, the Ninth Corps was deployed to the left, or south, of Couch's Second Corps, and served as the connecting link between Sumner's right Grand Division in Fredericksburg and Franklin's left Grand Division down below the town. Couch and Wilcox thought the orders for their two divisions from the 2nd and the 9th Corps to cooperate were clear, but faulty communications and misunderstandings thwarted the Federal's best efforts. As a result, Howard charged out of Fredericksburg to support Hancock before Sturgis could even get his men ready to advance. Otis Howard split his three brigades. One of them, led by Brigadier General Alfred Sully, lingered on the edge of town, supporting the Federal artillery there. The rest of the division, the brigades of Colonels Joshua Owen and Norman Hall, sallied forth from Fredericksburg. Owen's Philadelphia Brigade moved out on George Street, following in the footsteps of Hancock. But like Hancock's men, Owen's troops were also soon stopped cold by the ferocious Confederate defensive fire and pinned down. Hall's brigade took a different angle of approach after crossing the mill race and tried to shift the attack north of Hanover Street. The rebels, however, easily repulsed this effort, beating back several assaults by Hall's Federals before the Yankees finally gave up and sought shelter in a swampy extension of the mill race called Gordon's Marsh. No sooner had Howard's men exhausted their strength than Sturgis's troops from the Ninth Corps dashed onto the battlefield from the left. And now comes the ringing command of our colonel. Fall in, 11th New Hampshire. To say that my heart got right up into my mouth, don't half express it. But we respond. We move out of the shelter of the buildings, deploy into line, and the whole scene bursts upon us. Forward, steady, keep cool, and we go to that seething hell. Down they go to the right and left by dozens, but still they press on. The ranks are mown down by the rebel artillery. In the smoke of our guns and that of the enemy, we push on, still on, towards the base of that hill. Great gaps are torn in the ranks. Men are falling all around us. 
Another and another line of battle comes charging up behind, mingling their forces with ours. We struggle towards that stone wall that is belching out its hail of iron and fire, but all in vain, we cannot reach it. The line wavers suddenly, stops and shivers like some great ship that is beaten by a storm and recedes. Lie down, is the command. We did not need any further orders. We just dropped and clung to the earth to escape that shower of lead. One of my men, a good-natured Irishman, crept up to me and said, Oh, Lieutenant, dear, they will kill every son of a gun of us. Not a damned one will be left to tell the tale. In all the fury of that fight, I had to laugh, although it really seemed to me that what he said might come true. For how to get out of that place alive was a puzzle to me. I did not think it possible. The warm sun had softened the earth so that it was nothing now but mud and water, but I don't think we cared what it was. We only wished it was deep enough to cover us entirely so that those devilish guns that were ripping and tearing the ground might not reach us. Lieutenant John C. Courier, 11th New Hampshire, Ferraro's Brigade Sturgis sent the Ninth Corps brigades of Ferrero and Nagel out from the southern end of Fredericksburg so that they came up on the left of Couch's pinned-down survivors. Brigadier General Edward Ferrero addressed his men, telling them that he would, quote, not ask you to go anywhere that I will not lead you, end quote. But a demoralized company officer noted bitterly that he never saw the brigade brigadier after that. Instead, others witnessed Sturgis and Ferrero share a canteen of whiskey as they sheltered behind a building on the edge of town. Without strong leadership, Ferrero's men wasted their effort and ended up seeking cover behind the swell in the ground in front of the stone wall with all of the previously mangled units. Brigadier General James Nagel's brigade attempted to exploit the cover of an unfinished railroad cut to get closer to the Confederates, but rebel guns posted on Telegraph Hill, today's Lee's Hill, had a clear shot directly down the cut, and they tore apart the Federal movement. As a result, Nagel's assault collapsed in a matter of minutes. The Confederates along the stone wall met each successive wave of attackers with a, quote, steady, withering sheet of flame, according to one witness. One Union survivor admitted, quote, it was impossible amid such a blinding storm of bullets to proceed any farther. A crisis, however, soon developed along the sunken road as the Confederates began to run alarmingly low on ammunition and the Yankees continued to pour onto the field. Cobb's Georgians appealed for help and Brigadier General Robert Ransom's North Carolinians, who had been held in reserve, dashed forward down the face of Marie's Heights to mix with Cobb's men behind the stone wall in the sunken road. One Georgian, the same Sergeant Montgomery of Phillips Legion from the top of the show, remembered the reinforcements rushing down the slope, screaming, quote, like so many wild Indians. Ransom's men shared their cartridges, and then when that ammunition was used up, South Carolinians from Kershaw's brigade raced down the hillside to the sunken road. Cobb had already been carried to the rear bleeding to death, so Kershaw took command of the defenders. 
Eventually, so many rebel soldiers from these different units were intermingled along the road that they stood seven deep at spots behind the stone wall. So many men, rotating from front to back or simply passing up loaded muskets, were able to keep up a nearly uninterrupted storm of lead. Kershaw described the firepower as, quote, the most rapid and continuous I have ever witnessed. Most of the Confederate casualties here occurred while units were coming down the open, exposed front slope of Marie's Heights to get to the sunken road and stone wall. But the vast majority of the Confederate soldiers who sprinted down the slope reached the foot of the hill in safety, and their muskets proved vital in stopping the successive waves of Federal attackers. Someone in the 15th North Carolina guessed his regiment of 563 men fired 35,000 bullets on December 13th, which amounted to 62 rounds per soldier. The commander of the 48th North Carolina calculated that his men expended more than 100 rounds apiece. A lieutenant in the 24th North Carolina thought they had fired over 100 rounds, saying, quote, The boys were as black as burnt cork minstrels. This was from biting the end of the paper cartridges. And though cold underfoot, we were sweating through excitement and exertion. Our shoulders were kicked blue from the muskets and were sore for many days. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Just as General Kershaw gave the order to the brigade to move down the hill, he ordered me to bring up the ordnance wagons. I found them, hurried them forward, and just as I got them in position, Lieutenant Dees, one of General Kershaw's aides, rode up on Old Stone, the horse the general had ridden into battle. Old Stone had a ball through his neck, and Lieutenant Dees was badly wounded in the leg by a piece of shell. Dees said, "'General Kershaw wants another horse.' It took me only a few minutes to change the saddle and bridle from Old Stone to Montgomery, a very fine gray horse of the general's that was kept with the ordnance wagons when we went into battle. 
I mounted him, and having heard from Dees what a fearful time the brigade had going down the front of Marie's Heights, I decided to go round the road. As I came round the hill, and where I came to the end of the stone wall, I met Captain Matt Crumley, my brother, who was with Wofford's brigade. We recognized each other, and he stopped my horse, asking, Where are you going? I replied, I am taking this horse to General Kershaw. You will be killed before you have gone fifty yards, was his cheery reply. I told him, I am ordered to go, and go I will have to, or try at least. He bade me farewell as if he never expected to see me again, and started the horse with his sword as it seemed reluctant to go forward. The road on to where General Cobb was wounded, and which stood at the other end of the stone wall where General Kershaw had his headquarters, was nearly full of troops, many wounded or dead, so it was impossible for me to make much headway at speed through them. The wall was low, and I was exposed from my feet up to the fire from the whole Yankee line, which was a little over a hundred yards from the wall. I rode through this fearful storm of mini-balls for about three hundred yards, and arrived safely behind the house mentioned. When General Kershaw was located, and as soon as he saw me, he said, What are you doing here with Montgomery? Every horse in the brigade has been killed. Take him out at once. I explained as quickly as I could what Lieutenant Dees had told me, and asked him how must I get out, as I could never go back by the road. His reply was, Right over the hill. So I backed Montgomery to the other side of the road so as to get a start. I drove the spurs into him. He leaped up the bank and fairly flew, with me clinging to his back and flattened out like a lizard on a log. Our men in the road, many who knew me, cheered me as I rode over the hill in safety. My escape was so remarkable that it was mentioned by General McClaws in his report of the battle. Private William M. Crumley, Staff, Kershaw's Brigade A subtle change swept over the Union High Command as brigade after brigade and division after division experienced failure in front of Maurice Heights and was met with a corresponding buildup of Confederate forces along the sunken road. Ambrose Burnside still hoped to ultimately win the battle, but now he also faced the possibility of losing his army to a powerful counterattack by Robert E. Lee. With each dismal failure against the stone wall, more and more Federal units were used up and went to ground, stuck in the jumbled mass of men trapped out in the killing fields. The deadly Confederate musketry and cannon fire meant the Federal soldiers were powerless to advance any farther, but equally unable to fall back to safety. Watching several waves of enemy reinforcements come down the front slope of Maurice Heights and strengthen the rebel line along the sunken road, Union soldiers started to imagine the Confederates were about to launch a strong counterattack and sweep their shattered units from the blood-drenched battlefield. In his mind, the only way Burnside could salvage the effort on the northern part of the battlefield, the only way, in fact, that he could make sure the Confederates would not strike back and sweep the vulnerable and disorganized Federal units from the field, was to ensure that Robert E. Lee never gained the initiative. Burnside desperately sent orders to Franklin, urging him to renew his attacks on the southern portion of the battlefield against Stonewall Jackson. 
and Burnside also hurried fresh Union troops across the river into Fredericksburg and straight into the battle for Marie's Heights. That meant Fighting Joe Hooker's Center Grand Division, composed of the 3rd and 5th Corps, now took over the attempt to break Longstreet's line. Hooker had already lost command of much of the 3rd Corps, which had already been parceled out across the battlefield in small detachments. Only one brigade of 3rd Corps troops, led by Colonel Samuel Sprig Carroll, would test its mettle against the stone wall. Hooker's main force came from Brigadier General Daniel Butterfield's 5th Corps. Butterfield's 1st Division, under the flinty professional Brigadier General Charles Griffin, led the way across the Rappahannock at the Middle Crossing. Griffin expertly maneuvered his men into the whirlwind of battle beyond Fredericksburg and in the process received a slight wound, making him the highest-ranking Union officer to be wounded in the fight for Maurice Heights. Griffin had three brigades under Colonels James Barnes, Jacob Schweitzer, and Thomas Stockton, and he hurled them into action at 3.30 that afternoon. They left Fredericksburg on Prussia Street, one right after the other. Griffin's soldiers complained that in many spots the ground had become literally slick with blood and gore. As Griffin's men added their own blood and gore to the terrible mixture, their advance also ground to a halt, but bought the Federals an hour's reprieve from any potential Confederate counterattack. The day wasn't yet over, however, which meant that Burnside needed to maintain the pressure in order to keep the rebels from seizing the initiative, which meant he had to attack again. Hooker, appalled at the unrelenting bloodletting, insisted it was suicide to commit more troops to the futile effort, saying that, quote, it would be a useless waste of life to attack with the force at my disposal, end quote. But Burnside was unyielding. At some point, Brigadier General Andrew Humphreys may have encouraged Burnside to use his brand-new untried division of Pennsylvanians to renew the assault. The bulk of Humphreys' command was comprised of nine-months regiments that were just as green as their general, but Humphreys yearned for action and did everything in his power to get his division into the battle. A staff officer who saw Humphreys emerge from Burnside's headquarters on the east side of the river observed, quote, It was evident to anyone acquainted with his manner that gratifying instructions had been received. End quote. Gratifying, perhaps, to Humphreys, but for his men, all that lay ahead for them was to add yet another tragic chapter to the already sad tale of the fruitless federal attacks against Marie's Heights. All at once, our brigade bugler sounds the bugle call. This means that our time has come to cross the river and join in the battle. Fall in, shouts the colonel. Fall in, repeats the company commander. The men obey with alacrity, feeling that they have been inactive witnesses of the battle scene quite long enough. At three o'clock in the afternoon of Saturday the 13th, our brigade and division descend the river bank, cross the pontoon bridge, ascend the river bank on the other side, and march through the suburbs of Fredericksburg in the direction of the advance lines of our troops. When within about a half a mile of the enemy's position, our column of fours halts and hastily forms in line of battle. 
Then, after a brief rest, comes the command, scarcely heard above the roar of battle on our front, Attention battalion! Fix bayonets! Forward! Guide center! March! And away we go, up the rising ground in our front, over fences, across ditches, gardens, and fields, but in the face of a storm, it seems to us, of crashing shot and shell and whistling bullets. We pass by and over several lines of battle of the Second and Ninth Corps, who had charged and fought manfully before us and been repulsed with heavy loss and killed and wounded. Their thinned ranks now lie on the ground under the shelter of a slight elevation of ground in their front, and they willingly make way for the onward march of our fresh troops and cheer us on. We hear them say, Don't mind stepping on us, boys. March right on. The Johnnies are waiting for you right over there behind that stone wall. You will find them there, all right. Sergeant Edward Simonton, 20th Maine, Stockton's Brigade. Humphrey's division crossed the Rappahannock at the upper crossing and made its way through Fredericksburg until it reached George Street. Humphrey's orders had got him across the Rappahannock, but his instructions were only to secure the town against a possible Confederate counterthrust. The eager general had come tantalizingly close to the actual battlefield, but his orders didn't authorize him to join the assault against Marie's Heights. Second Corps Commander Couch, however, agonizing that his troops had been butchered out in the killing fields beyond the town, pleaded with Humphreys to take his men into combat anyway. Little arm-twisting was needed, since that was exactly what Humphreys wanted to do, and he quickly seized the opportunity to launch his men against the Confederate defenses. Hooker approved Humphreys' decision after the fact. At about the same time on the Confederate side, the Washington Artillery of New Orleans on Marie's Heights had exhausted its ammunition after an outstanding day of fighting. Colonel James Walton appealed to Lieutenant Colonel E. Porter Alexander to come up and replace his batteries. Impulsively, Alexander agreed and hurried his guns forward, although in hindsight he wished he'd only sent his ammunition forward instead to simply replenish Walton's empty limber chests. As Alexander rushed his cannon to the front, Walton's guns pulled out of their emplacements. Robert E. Lee on Telegraph Hill witnessed this unexpected movement, and a bit concerned by it, took James Longstreet by the arm. Look there, Lee said, pointing. What does that mean? Longstreet had no idea, but he dispatched a staff officer to find out. On the Federal side, Humphreys also saw the Washington artillery pull out and concluded that the Confederates were abandoning their position and pushed his lead brigade forward to triumphantly seize Marie's Heights with a bayonet charge. The general personally led Colonel Peter H. Allabach's inexperienced troops into battle. Humphreys later said that he enjoyed the thrill of battle. I felt gloriously and as the storm of bullets whistled around me, the excitement grew more glorious still. Oh, it was sublime. To a friend, he confessed, I felt like a young girl of sixteen at her first ball. He then quickly edited himself, saying, I felt more like a god than a man. 
As he prepared to take his doomed men to the slaughter, Humphreys turned to his staff and announced, Gentlemen, I shall lead this charge. I presume, of course, you will wish to ride with me. As the sun sank low in the western sky, Humphreys rode ahead of his line of battle. He later proclaimed that, quote, It was the greatest sight they ever saw. I led the charge. The setting sun shining full upon my face gave me the aspect of an inspired being. Brigadier General Andrew Humphreys was obviously something of a pompous, glory-seeking jerk at Fredericksburg, unfortunately for his men, who he hustled across the ground already covered with dead and wounded. When Humphreys' troops reached the swell in the ground, where so many survivors of the earlier assaults were sheltering, many of the Union soldiers there grabbed at the coats or legs of the advancing men, begging them to take cover. Humphreys, however, spurred his horse ahead and demanded that his troops keep going. As Humphreys' men advanced onto the stretch of open ground beyond the Stratton House and Orchard, on the Confederate side, Porter Alexander's cannon trundled across the hilltop ahead and quickly deployed in the vacant gun pits. The rebel artillery blasted the mass of Union troops advancing below them. Humphreys' line disappeared in fire and smoke, and Alabac's shattered ranks fled back to the mill race. Humphreys quickly brought up his second brigade, led by Colonel Erastus B. Tyler, and advanced toward the stone wall again. Tyler's men advanced with just as much determination as Alabac's, reaching the soldier-choked spot of ground in front of the sunken road, where Humphreys, again, drove his men through the prone ranks of survivors. Colonel Matthew Quay, the former commander of the 134th Pennsylvania, earned the Medal of Honor when he rode ahead of Tyler's troops, urging them to follow. Quay had recently resigned his commission for medical reasons, but when it was obvious a battle was imminent, he had begged to stay with the Army on Tyler's staff. All of his soldiers, however, had assumed he was leaving and had entrusted much of their pay to him to take back home. More than one jokester observed that the men stuck so close to Quay as he rode ahead of them because he was carrying their money. Quay led them into the field behind the Stratton Orchard, only 50 yards from the Confederates, but the Pennsylvanians lasted only a few minutes before they too fell back in disarray. Brigade Commander Tyler had been severely wounded, and most of his regimental officers were also down. Humphreys personally directed the rear guard as it fell back, leading them in a rousing chorus, which he thought would impress the rebels. Instead, Confederate General Robert Ransom reported that he had beaten back numerous assaults on December 13th, but the last one he sent back, quote, howling. Humphreys' Pennsylvanians may have been green, but on December 13th, they came as close to the terrible stone wall as any Union troops. The sun hadn't quite set when Humphreys' bloodied brigades retreated from the battlefield. Brigadier General George Sykes' division of regular Army troops tried to cover Humphreys' retreat and became immediately caught in the deadly hail of Confederate fire, so they flattened themselves on the ground and remained there. But there was still time on this winter's day for Robert E. Lee to launch a counterattack, so Ambrose Burnside decided to assault Maurice Heights one more time. 
His only available reserve came from Brigadier General George Getty's division of the Ninth Corps. Realizing they were being given a hopeless job, an officer in a New Hampshire regiment eyed the slowly sinking sun and growled, I wish I could get up there and kick that thing down. Duty called, and Getty had no choice but to send forward the brigade of Colonel Rush Hawkins against the seemingly impregnable Confederate line. Hawkins' men moved through the south end of Fredericksburg and out the unfinished railroad bed. With the sun setting, deepening shadows masked much of Hawkins' movement. Reaching a point near the southern end of Marie's Heights, the Federals gave a mighty cheer and surged forward toward the sunken road. Porter Alexander admitted that, in the winter twilight, he hadn't seen Hawkins' troops approaching, but he heard their loud cheer directly below him. The Confederate gunners and infantry opened up on the charging Yankees, and Hawkins' attack, like all of those before him, collapsed in blood and confusion. Like several other units on this day, they too would claim to have come closer to the stone wall than any other Union troops, and on this portion of the battlefield, they were undoubtedly correct. But Hawkins' men were also driven off by the terrible Confederate defensive fire, forced to fall back into the railroad cut, where rebel artillery continued to flay them in the growing darkness. Hawkins' attack marked the final Union assault on the stone wall. Darkness covered the landscape by 6.30, ending the brutally uneven contest in front of Marie's Heights. Ambrose Burnside had hurled seven divisions, about 35,000 men, against the sunken road and stone wall. Initially, he attacked here in order to give his left wing a chance to win on the southern part of the battlefield. Later, he continued the hopeless assaults in a desperate attempt to maintain the initiative and to keep from losing the entire right wing of his army. In the course of six or so hours of futile attacks against Marie's Heights, the Federals suffered nearly 8,000 casualties. One Pennsylvania soldier said, The ground, as far as the eye could reach, was thickly strewn with the dead and dying, and the heart-rending shrieks and moans of the sufferers struck terror into the most callous hearts, causing a sickening sensation, and, intensifying through the ear, the ghastly horrors everywhere visible to the eye. Across the way, James Longstreet's Confederates had suffered fewer than 1,000 casualties in their defense of the sunken road and stone wall, making the combat in front of Maurice Heights at Fredericksburg one of the most lopsided battles of the entire Civil War. Next week, we'll look at the tragic aftermath of the battle as thousands of Union wounded lay on the battlefield and suffered through the bitter cold night of December 13th. And then, as Burnside, incredibly, wanted to give the thing one more go, but was talked out of it. Anyway, we wanted to let you know that right now, our plans are to wrap up our discussion of Fredericksburg with the next show, and then we won't have a new episode the next week because of the Memorial Day holiday, but we'll return the first weekend in June with the Mud March, which, coupled with some backstabbing by several of his subordinates, proved to finally be Ambrose Burnside's undoing. After that, we'll be heading out to Tennessee to finish out 1862 on the podcast with the Battle of Stones River. (laughs) 
That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is a couple of back issues of Blue and Gray magazine that cover the Battle of Fredericksburg, volume 25, issues number four and number five. Blue and Gray magazine sadly is no longer in print, so we're not sure how hard it is to get these back issues now. But if you can get your hands on these two magazines, the articles by Frank O'Reilly are good, but the maps are simply outstanding. They're really excellent. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can find links to the show's Facebook page and Twitter feed. And we wanted to give a special shout out to Kevin S. this week, who was the 3,000th person to like the podcast on Facebook recently. Woohoo! Woohoo indeed. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next time as we wrap up our discussion of the Battle of Fredericksburg. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.